0: And the young men who were so consumed with their own strength and with the prideful expectation that they were the best of the best, they were killed. They'll fall by the sword. Mighty men in battle. There'll be lamentation and mourning. I mean, that's a pretty awful look at things, isn't it? Um, So what happens when God judges? Well, the things that people trusted instead of trusting the Lord are, are destroyed. And people are desperate. You know, any change makes us uneasy. There's stress in any change. Imagine if society is upended and the things that people so desperately believed and thought were right and thought were the best of the best are revealed to be nothing but... Um, smoke and mirrors. Uh, It's a mass uh, kind of schizophrenia that sets in. People don't know which way is up. They they don't know what's real anyway. And that leads to societal collapse. But there's one more um, impact of God's judgment and I saved it for last just because I think it sets us up to see a glimpse of his glory. Um, Go back to chapter 2 and verse 11. God's glory alone will be exalted and that's the whole point. That is the final consequence of judgment. See judgment is punitive, yes. God is not rehabbing people when he brings punishment. Now discipline is different. Our punishment fell upon Christ, not upon us. So when he brings hard times, when he allows difficult situations, He uses that trial to shape our character and to make us more like Christ. But when God judges the people who have rejected him and said no to him and placed instead of him idolatry of their own making, then it's punitive. Then it's, I mean, it is the lake of fire ultimately. But there's more than punitive impact on God's judgment. Part of what God does when he judges is he sets things right. When Jesus comes back, he's going to fix things. And make them the way that we're supposed to be. We started out in a paradise. What happened? Well, Christ is coming to make that right. There'll be paradise again. This old world that has fallen along with its people will be renewed. There'll be a new heavens and a new earth. So, when you get to chapter 2 verse 11... I read the first part of the verse. The last part of the verse says the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. That's the whole point. Only God will be God. All the false gods, they're gone. It's obvious. Verse 17 repeats it. The end of verse 17, I read the first part earlier, says the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. That's the way it's supposed to be. Um, People exalting themselves and saying this truth is my truth and your truth is your truth and actually I don't care for your truth at all. Um, The the, the kind of incredible arrogance uh, and cynicism that we see in our society, well that afflicted the the Jewish people as well and God dealt with it and he's going to deal with ours as well. Um, In the end, the last man standing will be Jesus. Um, it'll be Christ lifted up. And that sets things right. That's, that's the way it's supposed to be. So that leads us then into the second glimpse of glory that um, is the last few verses of chapter 4. I want to read it again and then underscore some themes that you see there. So chapter 4 verse 2 reads this way. In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious And the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment, by a spirit of burning... Then the Lord will create over the whole side of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. It's intriguing. I mean, I read this and I think Millennial Kingdom. Man, that is... I really want to see what that's about. And it whets my appetite for what's coming. And yet, the definition and the symbolism of it, um, I think we're a little hazy on the details. But there's some great themes. One of them is, this glimpse of glory is the Messiah's glory. Um, When it says, in that day, the branch of the Lord, the word branch is code for Messiah. Messiah. And Jeremiah and Malachi both use the term at least a couple times in both of those prophetic books to refer directly to the, the line of David that becomes Lord Jesus Christ. So, 700 plus years after these things were written, there was a baby born in Bethlehem. He's the branch. And so when he says, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, whatever we know about paradise, it is that Christ is in the middle of it, at the center of it, the foundation of it, the joy, and the glory of all glories is the glory of Jesus. Uh, You know, a few years ago, um, someone wrote a book called The First, was it The First Five People You Meet in heaven or first 10 people, I forget how many people there were that you meet, was, there's was no Jesus. I mean, it's just like you're wandering around. It's almost dystopia. You know, a landscape. Hey, how's it going? Uh, that's not the way it's going to be, folks. Christ is at the center of this. If he's not at the center of your life now, why would you think you would enjoy heaven? Heaven is not video games and ice cream. Boy, the ice cream part sounds good. Um, it's Christ who fills our lives with joy in his presence, his fullness of joy. So that's what uh, the allusion in verse two at the beginning, that's what it's all about. It's about the glory of Jesus. Another theme is God's holy people. And At the very end of verse 1 and into chapter, into verse 3, he says, the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor. So this is a fruitful kingdom. And those who survive judgment have pride in being there. Verse 3 says, and he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. Do you see here, these people... Uh, have been saved by God. He has chosen them. And we know from Ephesians and Romans and a whole bunch of other places, chosen before the foundation of the world. Um, that's how they survive. That's why they're holy. They're set apart by him. And in fact, there's this allusion to the book of life where he says they have been recorded. They didn't record their names. It wasn't a sign-up sheet on the outside of church. They were recorded by Almighty God, um, as he says in verse 3. And then, these who have survived judgment have been washed clean and forgiven. Verse, five, or verse 4, they, the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion. That's something you can't wash away by yourself and cleanse the bloodstains of Jerusalem. He doesn't specify how that's going to happen. He, You find out in chapter 53, there's a lamb, Um, there is the suffering servant, there's the one who died in your place, and his name is Jesus. And when we get to chapter 53, I don't know if this seems like I'm going slow. To me, it's like a rocket speed uh, to already be finishing up uh, chapter 4. But we're going to slow down in chapter 53 because that is awesome, wonderful truth that is so amazing to have been written 700 plus years before Christ was born in Bethlehem. Um, So, a holy people, and what a great image we have of these grateful people who are humbled and cleansed, God's chosen ones living in a fruitful land, and the center of everything is the Lord Jesus. There's one more, and it's very intriguing, I think, and I'm calling it this theme, the canopy of love. Notice verse 5. Then the Lord will create over the whole side of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. Isn't that interesting? What what does that remind you of? It's the wilderness wanderings, right? When uh, God God led his people uh, out of Egypt across the Red Sea and into the wilderness. And they ended up staying for a generation. And God led them by a glory cloud during the day. And when the cloud stopped, they stopped. And then at night there was the Shekinah glory. There was this uh, pillar of fire at night, the image of God in his people and yet distant. Um, Well, here he's using that same illusion. To remind us that the glory of God is here. But then he says something else. For over all the glory, there will be a canopy. Isn't that interesting? What a canopy? A shade canopy? Like We put that out, you know, put a canopy out sometime. The word canopy is used in the Hebrew Bible quite often for a marriage chamber. And the book of Song of Solomon says, the banner over me is love. Not the same word, I don't think, but it's, it's, a, it's a, uh, the same idea. So what you've got here is the image of God's love in his people that in the end, at the very end of all things, the bride comes down from heaven fit for her, her bridegroom who is Christ. And so it's this image of covenant love of God loving his people like a husband loves a wife that you see in this image of glory. Isn't that wonderful? Um, He he says there'll be a booth for shade and refuge from the storm. This will be a place protected by Almighty God. Isn't it wonderful also to notice this glory that we're speaking of is a glory that was part of his judgment before. If God reveals his judgment to sinners like you and me before we were saved, it could kill us. It's like being thrown into the heart of the sun. It's too much. Moses thought he could stand it. I remember I told you last week, Moses said, please, Lord, um, I'd really like to see your glory. And God says, look, you, you can't you can't. I'll have to shield you. If you want to see just a glimpse, I'll put you in the, over here in the cleft of the rock. But now, what's happened? How come the centerpiece of all of this is glory, whereas before glory was a means of, of judgment? Well, the difference is, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So it's the, um, the covering of humanity that enables us to see God's glory. God in flesh, second person of the Trinity, adds unto himself a human nature and his glory is in our midst and it's the greatest thing for us all that we could ever imagine. Um, Well, I'm glad it ends on a note of glory. Next week is chapter 5, and there's some rigorous stuff in there. I'm going to teach you some woes, and uh, woe unto them, woe unto us. But I thought I would wind up, as I've done the last few times, with some takeaways. Um, When you think of the dystopia that that our culture fears, and the reality of judgment that's coming... I don't want you to ever forget that God's plan, the end of the tunnel, is glory. And so I have four takeaways. And as always, I think of these for myself first. I mean, this is how I have a takeaway. I think, well, what did I get out of this? And what am I going to deal with? What, what's good for my soul? So if it doesn't work for you, it's not scripture. Well, it is scripture, but it, it's not necessarily what the text is giving us. I think this is an application for me and maybe for you. Number one, don't be afraid. And don't let your kids and grandkids be afraid. Jesus said, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, to give you glory. We're just sheep given to him by our heavenly father. He's our good shepherd. You know, I I had a pet sheep when I was growing up on a farm. They're lovable, I'll tell you. They really are. But they're dumber than a post. I mean, the sheep are not bright. And so I'm not sure all the reasons why the Lord calls the sheep, but I mean, there's a part of it that might be flattering a little bit, but mostly... Why wouldn't we be fearful? We look around, people are predicting the oceans are going to, you know, destroy everything, the the climate change. Jesus said, fear not, little flock. I'm going to take care of you. In fact, he said in Matthew 10, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Don't fear... ISIS, fear God. Don't fear Antifa, fear God. Don't fear climate change and the people who are insisting that you ought to change your way of life based on their faulty science. Don't fear, fear almighty God. Don't fear the government and the inevitable corruption of men in power, men and women, men and women. Boy, that's the truth. Um, Fear God. Our ultimate deliverance does not come from who we elect, although, as good stewards, we take care of the environment and we vote our conscience and we try to be responsible. But our hope and deliverance is our shepherd. And so, don't fear the wolves. Uh, Fear God. Not only would I say, don't be afraid, but don't be surprised. Peter said it in 1 Peter 4. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal, fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. What's going on? Hey, well, read your Bible. Jesus predicted this from the beginning. He says, this is part of the contract. This is part of the covenant we have together. In this world you will have tribulation. You know. Um, but be of good cheer. He said, "I've overcome the world." In John sixteen thirty three. So, are things going to get bad? Yeah, I mean it's it was bad in the first century. It was bad in the eighth century B.C. Um, but you know what? We shouldn't be surprised because the Lord is handling it in His own way and time. Number three takeaway, uh, for me at least, is keep your eyes on the prize. It's so easy to get distracted, don't you think? Some of you are distracted right now. You make my point. I love Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so, such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which so easily clings to us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And here it is. Looking to Jesus. And the, and the Greek there means. Tear your eyes off of the stuff that's been distracting you. And focus again on Christ. Looking to Jesus. The author and perfecter of your faith. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Despising the shame. And is now seated where we all want to be one day. At the right hand of the Father. So, you know, the prize is Christ. Keep your eyes on the prize. It's his ministry. It's, it's the developing this relationship with him and helping others to do the same. Yeah, we have jobs. We have families. Yes, we have civic responsibilities. We live in a world that needs our participation. These things are all true. God placed us sovereignly where we are. But don't get distracted and think that Our hope is somewhere else because it's not. Keep your eyes on the prize. And the last one I have for myself and maybe for you is make the most of the time. Uh, Ephesians 5, 15, and 16 says, Look carefully, then how you walk not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Every morning we get up and we thank God that we're still up. You know, we have another day. So we have choices we can make about how to spend it. Now, you have a job and you have a family. And then you, your choices are somewhat limited by <laughs> the realities. God has given you a job. Thank God for that. God's given you a family. Thank God for, for that. But you do have choices about your, your focus and your priorities and how you'll spend your time. And if you're looking forward to uh, a pleasant but not very important use of your time. Maybe you should rethink that cuz you don't really know how long you have. Oh, God does. God knows how long this planet's going to be until he's going to start over and rebuild it. God knows how long your life is. And and none of us know that. None of us have a guarantee. I came from a very small high school, but before my graduation there were 3 of us that died through accidents car accidents and there was a drowning in the middle of that. I mean, who would think 17 or 18 year old and your life is done? We don't know. Why not figure out what God's priorities are and focus on those things? If we're winding through a dark tunnel, if we have a path to walk that walks through the darkness at times, then doesn't it make sense to do all we can to focus on the glory and to bring as many people as possible along with us? Seems like that would be a good use of our time. Dear friends, don't be discouraged by what's around you. Remember, who holds the world in his hands and who holds you? Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, the imagery you give us of glory. Uh, We'd like more detail, more definition, but what we see is wonderful intriguing, attractive. We want to make sure that we're preparing ourselves to live with you forever. And yet we live in a world where the darkness sometimes throws its shadows on us. And we have loved ones who are in desperate shape spiritually, some physically. And we worry and we wish we could do more. And yet, Father... Thank you for reminding us that you hold the world in your hands and us too. In Jesus' name, amen.